2: So now that companies are earning so much money and the cash that they have is sloshing around their balance sheets, how much are they paying down that debt that they've been borrowing, the trillions of dollars of debt that they've been incurring over the past eight years? Here to answer that question, Joel Levington, Senior Credit Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. He writes amazing reports. He joins us here in our 1130 studios. Joel, uh, you did a study Looking at leverage ratios among among companies. Basically, this is the amount of debt that they have relative to the income that they have. How do things look right now?
3: Uh, Well, I'll tell you, Lisa, not that great. Uh, (laughs) In some, Uh, you know, metrics uh, continue to remain elevated. We've done uh, nine studies over the last five years, and we're uh, right around the highest point uh, for all the major rating classes except for the junkiest class, the single B tier, which has slightly improved.
2: Okay, to be clear, in other words, corporate leverage has increased to the highest levels in data going back four years, right? That's right. Uh, and it has steadily increased, even though the cash flows have increased, profits have increased. That has not offset the rapid uh, the rapid selling of debt.
3: That's exactly right. And earnings are are robust and healthy. However, uh, tables have turned towards uh, capital allocation plans where it's share purchases, dividends and acquisitions, and the cash that's being used for those three items are at least exceeding cash that is being generated and therefore leverage can't uh, improve.
2: All right. So let's dig into here a little bit. I mean, you're starting to see investors express concern at all about leverage increasing, or are they still pretty much in a free-for-all, take my money? I you don't know care. It, it, it's a great <laughs>
3: question the, the beyond just the individual uh, company specific items uh, where I hear it the most uh, is in the triple B category which has increased a lot over the last few years uh, and what I find it's very bifurcated you can look at subsectors and I, I would say it my 32nd takeaway on it is that in sectors uh, that the reading agencies view as stable uh, like consumer cyclic, uh, excuse me, consumer staples as well as healthcare, the rating agencies have allowed the companies to lever up much more than you would t- traditionally find. Sometimes to even six times uh, leverage, with the hope that a deal will pan out well and that cash flow will pay down debt over the next couple of years. Uh, having been around the business for a long time, that n- never really happens exactly the way that people plan. <laughs>
2: this is such an important conversation because everyone talks about how much earnings are increasing. But the other side of the balance sheet is also inflating and frankly, inflating at a faster pace. And I feel like this is a really important thing to realize. I want to shift gears a little bit because you highlighted in another research piece that you put out that auto bonds have been among the worst performers of the year. And given what you've seen, you don't necessarily think that will Change.
3: That's right. Uh, you know, statistically, uh, auto demand uh, hinges on about three factors it's the price of the vehicle that you're buying, it's the loan rate uh, that, uh, that you have, and uh, it's gas prices uh, as they rise. It makes it tougher to bank that payment. And then, uh, so when you look at those three things, uh, they're all working against us if you're a, a car company, right? Prices are already at the highest on record. That's a mixed change of people moving out of uh, auto passenger cars and into CUVs and SUVs. So the price is working against you. Uh, Loan rates are already at their highs uh, for the last five years. And of course, you are expecting another like three hikes uh, going forward.
2: Can you give us a sense of which specific companies have been the worst performers in the bond world?
3: Well, Ford in investment grade has been very, very poor.
2: Um, I mean, do you think that investors might be pricing in a a pretty substantial downgrade for Ford? Because their their stocks have been down substantially as well. They've had turnover. Uh, They've really struggled to increase the profits.
3: I don't think so. I think if you look at uh, the Ford bonds or GM bonds, uh, they trade as uh, wide to uh, their peers and consumer discretionary. But you can find a lot of retailers in that area, too, that have the wherewithal to pay down debt and may have uh, less leverage and maybe more cash flow. So I'm not sure that they've priced in a severe downturn or decline. I think what they see is that maybe they were priced too tight to begin with and are trying to reset valuation.
2: You know, one thing I'm struck by is you were talking about the pressures on automakers, and it includes higher costs for the goods that they purchase. And I'm wondering, especially as uh, we just finished that eventful G7 meeting and that it seems like tariffs are going to be an ongoing theme, you know, are they going to be the prime losers from this because their input costs are going to increase. And what other sectors are people not thinking about that also could be big
3: losers? Well, I think you're totally right, Lisa. When you think of uh, raw material inflation, the auto market is so competitive, it's very, very hard to pass these costs on. And when you think of rising rates, and they have huge finance companies, many of them, uh, you can't really pass that cost on to the consumer. Uh, you have rising steel inflation. We were just talking about it earlier, how uh, uh, Adiant uh, auto supplier is down about 16%, 17% today because they couldn't pass uh, raw material inflation through. So I think these are the kinds of events that you could start seeing pop up more frequently. And clearly that will not have a great impact on, on credit risk or bonds.
2: But is there another, is there another uh, industry that could also see... Uh, sort of declines or pressure as a result of these increasing commodity prices?
3: Uh, Well, in the industrial world, you do have a lot of use of oil and energy. So as those prices rise, I think you could see maybe in the machinery space uh, where uh, steel uses is also quite high. So I could see uh, margin compression happen over there and maybe not the amount of expansion that people are expecting. And so that might be a place where you could see some problems.
2: Joel Levington, thank you so much for spending the time here. Joel Levington, Senior Credit Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, joining us here in our 1130 studios. This uh, study that they did on leverage trends, really fascinating, showing just how much people have been borrowing despite the increases in their earnings. The market is pretty much flat despite the fact that we've had quite a few pretty sensational headlines coming out over the weekend and we expect more throughout the week. Uh, Why are investors not responding at all to the escalating trade tensions to the possible accord in Korea? Let's get some uh, thoughts on that from James Paulson, chief investment strategist at the Luthold Group in Minneapolis, uh, Minnesota. And he joins us now by phone. James, thank you so much for being with us. I- I'd love to get your sense, just to get this out of the way. You know, it feels a little bit like the world is up in uh, in, a, in a roar of potential trade tensions and people battling each other in, in, with words and markets shrug. They do not care. Why?
4: Well, it, it might be uh, disrespectful tweet fatigue. I I, I don't know. Disrespectful I, tweet we, fatigue? Is yeah.
2: that is that like going to be a, a thing? D no, I, I don't DTF? Know. It's just DTF.
4: <laughs> I just think you know that we've uh, we've seen uh, this story quite a bit in the last uh, almost two years now. A, a lot of rhetoric, a lot of tough rhetoric, even among countries now, but little really happens. And so there has been market moves in the past it has been you know, fairly significant on news like we've had lately and to no avail. And if you you know sold out, you you lost out uh, because the market sort of recovered. And uh, so I, I do think that the uh, the marketplace is becoming a little less sensitive to that, uh, reducing their beta to that type of flow of news. Now, if something really happened fundamentally, um, certainly there'd be a different response. But but just tough talk, it, it, it's kind of we're getting used to tough talk. That's that's been the uh, modus operandi for. For the last couple of years even leading up to the election. I think we're we're uh, sort of adjusting how much we move markets uh, on the basis of that. And, and then the other thing Lisa is there's just such a good fundamental story under this right now you know with with uh, just strong economy here in the United States and high confidence, strong earnings um, and I think there's also a growing bullishness out there, optimism about markets breaking out to the upside. So all those, I think, are factors keeping this market uh, uh, pretty healthy in the face of some pretty striking headline news.
2: You know, one thing that I found interesting is that big tech has continued to lead the rally, and I'm looking at the NASDAQ, which is just off a record high and uh, has continued to climb throughout the year, outperforming the other indices. And I'm just wondering, you know, given some of the concerns around Facebook, given the incredible amount of debt that Netflix is incurring to finance its entire business model, I mean, do you think that this has gone too far? or do you think that this is just the beginning?
4: Well, that's a good question. I uh, just wrote a piece a little bit I called dot com deja vu. Uh, here late last week, uh, there's certainly some, you know, uh, evidence that the uh, uh, movement of tech stocks relative to the overall market is, is a little bit uh, like dot-com here in the late 1990s. Um, over the last five years, um, for example, uh, technology stocks within the SP 500 have outperformed um, the overall market by more than two to one. Wow. Um, it's the ex-tech. 500. If, if you look at the last two or three years, tech stocks have outperformed the X-Tech S&P 500 more, by more than 3 to 1. In the last year, uh, tech stocks have outperformed the S&P tech by more than 4 to 1. Uh, and even year-to-date, roughly, tech stocks are up around the 14%, and X-Tech is roughly flat. So, um, there's a quite a dominance here of... Uh, Of tech stocks being the only game in town that's leading, much like the five years that led up to uh, 2000, on a relative basis, Lisa, S&P 500X technology to the overall S&P 500 has fallen about half as much on a relative basis in the last five years than it did during the dot-com. So you could argue on a performance basis that we've been experiencing almost a half a dot-com type of environment I do think it's uh, it's a warning sign of of concentration in a, in a few popular names that all the flows are going into um, and ignoring some of the potential risk that comes with that. But who knows how long that could continue. We, we've, You could see that in, in 1999 and it continued to go on as well, but I do think it's a growing risk. Well,
2: Can we just dig in a little bit as to how that risk could play out? Is the risk that there could be say a big regulatory push with Facebook and all of a sudden that uh, brings down the entire higher market just because they've become so dominant? Or is it, you know, the whole, uh, uh, you know, smartphone super cycle and then the decline there? I mean, is that the kind of kind of thing that could trigger this or would it be sort of more wholesale?
4: Well, um, it could be a number of things. I I think what the risk suggests is just the vulnerability is increasing. And if it increases enough, uh, oftentimes it could be any one of a number of different catalysts. Uh, Each of it, each of which individually might not even be that important, but if you've got a vulnerable enough market, it could be the straw that breaks the camel's back. It could be something, as you say, direct some news item directly related to the technology space itself. Uh, I have noted earlier this year that there's a big difference if you took the Fang Plus Index, New York Stock Exchange Fang Plus Index has about ten of those stocks most popular, and you divide them up to those that are regulated versus those that are, that are not. And I don't mean they are regulated, but that those that uh, rely more on social uh, reselling customer information for advertising purposes versus those that sell an actual product. Um, you, you already see quite a divergence. The non-regulated, quote-unquote, are doing far better than the regulated fangs. So the market's already discounting that risk. If there was something official that came out, that certainly could be a tipping point uh, for tech leadership. Yeah. But it might also just happen because the 10-year yield reaches a point that starts to scare people or inflation picks up. And since everyone's in those areas, if, if they do start to sell, they're going to see the most selling pressure as well.
2: Hey, Jim, just before I let you go, uh, what is the highest conviction trade you have right now?
4: <laughs> you know, uh, Lisa, I would uh, I would uh, add a, a little cash and maybe a commodity ETF uh, in my equity portfolio. I'd stay in equities, but I'd sort of change up how I'm writing them. Uh, maybe have a little cash. If we do hit an air pocket, you can go back in. And I like the commodity ETF. Uh, commodities, I think, are going to continue to go up. So those would be two things I'd throw out as a possibility. Not have everything in in, in uh, current momentum of technology right now.
2: And just real quick, what, what would you sell in order to raise more cash and uh, invest
4: in commodities? I'd sell some of those popular tech names <laughs> right now. All right. I'd pat myself on the back for owning them.
1: <laughs>
4: and <laughs> and, and I, cash I'd, out. I'd clap and, and cheer that I made a great decision and I'd give some of that away to somebody that wants them real bad right now. <laughs>
2: Jim Paulson. Thank you so much for being with us. Always a pleasure speaking with you. Jim Paulson is Chief Investment Strategist at the Luthold Group, uh, coming to us from Minneapolis, Minnesota, with
5: its beautiful lakes.
3: Com. Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE.
2: There is a lot of focus on where people are putting their money and whether it is responsible. Uh, and our next guest wants to responsibly build. Uh, he builds homes. Offices using containers, the containers, uh, shipping containers uh, that are no longer being circulated. I want to welcome Paul Galvin, Chairman and Chief Executive Officer of SG Blocks. Paul, your company is fascinating. Could you just give us a rundown? What does it do?
1: So, SG Blocks is a premier provider of modular construction, premised on the repurposing of shipping containers into internationally approved instruments of construction. The value proposition is a safer building in half the time at a better price, and so. Are they pretty though? They are, they're pretty. Uh,
2: (laughs) No, I mean, do you have to keep the shape of the container?
1: No, there's design flexibility. There's cladding flexibility. You can go anywhere from a kind of a high end cladded finish with limestone or brownstone or hardy board and all the way to celebrating the raw container as an urban look and feel, which a lot of millennials and developers and cities like.
2: So uh, what's the sort of value proposition from your perspective, given the fact that I imagine uh, there was a glut of containers at one point, the shipping industry took a pretty big hit. Yeah. You know how, how much were they discounted for you?
1: Our pricing is uh, arranged on a sort of permanent basis with a partner we've had since inception, conglobal Industries, who have 15 locations and manage the overwhelming domestic inventory. So pricing's not normally, uh, an issue for us,
2: even now with uh, the tariffs and the increase in steel prices, et cetera.
1: No, that we don't anticipate that being a problem for us. ConGlobal has an enormous inventory in the, in the states already.
2: Okay, so you don't think that that's going to increase the demand for, uh, for even used, metal products.
1: Uh, no, we're not anticipating that at that moment.
2: All right, um, and you guys went public last year,
1: right? Correct, about a year ago.
2: About a year ago, and what was that experience like?
1: It was an extremely uh, invigorating, enthusiastic, exhausting experience. The IPO itself was conducted over about 28 days, and we met with uh, well over 100 good investors, qualified investors. And every time you speak with the investment community, you you hopefully make them smarter, they hopefully make you smarter, and the dialogue can continue.
2: So what did you learn? What's the number one thing that you thought was... uh the biggest aha moment for you? Um,
1: the consistent experience from investors that they do not want to invest in small cap companies and then get diluted further down the road by other rounds of capital, which is why SG Blocks has a negative working capital with our clients. We take deposits and complete on percentage of completion so that while our backlog, which is enormous is starting to unfold into bigger increments of revenue. We don't need to raise money to finance those orders. And our company itself operates very efficiently.
2: That's really interesting. I hadn't thought about that. I thought that there was so much interest in small caps right now because they've been outperforming
1: uh, that you know people wouldn't necessarily ask so many questions. (laughs) Well, for some investors, they look at a company like ours with a market cap of about $20 million. And we have IP and exclusive inventory and an enormous pipeline of opportunities. And for some people, it looks like in a $6 trillion vertical, how could things uh, not grow exponentially? For other people, investors are on the sideline. They'd like to see some more of our backlog unfold into revenue and some more of our pipeline into the backlog. We have an almost uncountable number of leads and inquiries on a daily basis from people from single containers to 100 containers trying to unlock the value of their real estate. And so we provide them with a cost-efficient, time-efficient, sustainable, better alternative than traditional construction.
2: How much do you pay for each container?
1: That varies between the age of use and condition. It can range from 2000 to 5200 for a new one.
2: Do you feel like when there are more containers on the market that represents something broader about the economy? Because I know people look at the shipping, the dry bulk index, for example, as sort of you know the harbinger of doom if it drops too much. And I'm just wondering, you know, if your shipping companies start to try to sell their containers, does that have a similar kind of resonance?
1: No, it's a good strategy for the shipping companies to monetize assets that have been depreciated. In other
2: words, when they don't need them anymore.
1: Yeah, or when the value of the net income isn't as valuable to them and they could sell the commodity and see it repurposed in the economy and get a strike price for that. From our perspective, the containers are building up on our side of the pond because we're not manufacturing what we need to. So at SG Blocks... We take that container, which is a symbol of our failed manufacturing sector, and we use that as a manufactured product. And we use that for apartments and hotels and stores and offices. And uh, at this time, we're finishing up a school building in the heart of Los Angeles on Wilshire Boulevard. And we're working very hard to educate the investor base and the consuming base that Construction doesn't have to be so slow and expensive. SG Blocks modular construction is a better way to build.
2: Paul Galvin, thank you so much for being with us. Paul Galvin, Chairman and Chief Executive of SG Blocks, talking about uh, taking shipping containers and making them into buildings and homes. U.S. has become a major player in global oil markets, but there is a problem for the nation in its pursuit of dominance in the crude industry. And that is the infrastructure uh, is, let's say, behind the times when it comes to shipping around, moving around the oil within the United States. To join us uh, and speak about this issue that's caused the gap between, say, Brent and WTI to gap out to $10 or Brent and West Texas to $18, is Tyler Rosenlicht. He's Cohen and Steers, Senior Vice President and Portfolio Manager of Midstream Energy that's focusing on MLPs and other energy portfolios, as well as Nick Kutzaftis. He is Senior Vice President and Portfolio Manager of Commodities, Trading Commodity Futures, etc. Tyler, I want to start with you and just talk a little bit about the problem that has caused this divergence between the Brent price on one hand and WTI on the other. Why is this such a problem right now?
6: Yeah, so you know, one of the things that I think the market's been surprised by is how robust and quickly North American energy production has grown. And when you think about the disconnect between getting it to market, having pipelines and other infrastructure you need to actually get it to where it needs to go versus the production profile, you can have these periods in time where, you know, maybe it's coming out of the ground at a really fast rate, but you can't actually fit it on a pipeline. So you need to move it by rail or by truck or by some other means, that's going to be a lot more expensive. So what we're seeing today, you know, particularly all the way out in West Texas is a lot of energy production but we don't have the pipeline infrastructure that you need to actually move it to Cushing or to the Gulf Coast. And so what you see is truckers coming in and actually moving that oil by truck. And that's a much more expensive way to transport energy commodities. Um, you know, our view is it's gonna persist for a little while. You know, It takes a while for these new pipeline projects to actually be com- completed. And there's a few that we think will stage in sort of second half, of 19, early 2020. So expect to see these wide differentials for a while, but midstream businesses do have a, a good history of building infrastructure when these sort of arbitrage opportunities exist and there's a lot of projects being worked on.
2: You know, Nick, I'm struck by the concept that people are talking about building again in the oil patch right now uh, as oil prices surge this year, not today, but uh, just generally over the past few months. But two years ago, three years ago, it was a very different setting. I mean, How much do these uh, projects to create the pipelines hinge on just the price of oil?
7: I think... um there is certainly part of it does rely on the, uh, on the on the price of oil but given the long lead times that you have for these infrastructure projects it's important to you know be able to plan mul- multiple years out into the future um, so I think when a, whether it's an EMP company producing new projects or a pipeline company uh, building new pipe you take maybe a three to five year view and that view of the long-term price is going to be somewhat lower than where current oil prices are now. So you'll say, we're gonna base our investments on 50 to $55 oil, where oil now you know, is trading 65 to 75.
2: Right. Well, I mean, I guess that another way to ask this is, does the volatility, uh, particularly the volatility that we've seen over the past three years of oil prices, make it difficult to uh, raise capital for these projects at economic levels?
6: Yeah, so maybe I can start with that because I think you, you might ask, why do we have the wide differentials today? You know, why didn't we just build the pipelines a few years ago when we you know, saw line of sight into the Permian production increasing? And I think one of the issues was oil volatility was really high. And when you think about building a new pipeline project, most midstream businesses aren't going to pursue that unless they get long term contracts that sort of fix at least a minimal acceptable return. And we expected some of these projects to be announced last year, even in 2016, and they weren't. And part of that was because a lot of EMPs were concerned, oil's really volatile. How can they have confidence in the next five or six years sufficient to underpin, say, a 10-year takeaway agreement with a midstream company? So I think volatility in the commodity price does really do a lot when you think about capital budgets and building infrastructure and greenlighting new products and wells and that sort of thing.
7: And even if we did go back only a couple years ago, there was some <laughs> level of, of underestimating the amount of U.S. supply. So, you know, these Companies, these e companies, became a lot more efficient. We're using uh, improvements in technology to increase the amount of supply coming out of the U.S. Only to find ourselves in the situation where we're now, where there's not enough pipe to get yeah. it to the to the refiner or to the international markets.
2: So I'm really glad you guys are here today. Uh, earlier this morning, Bloomberg News reported that BlackRock is trying to get uh, further invested in liquefied natural gas projects, in particular pipelines. Um, and this is interesting uh, on a number of different levels, but it sort of represents to me the trillions of dollars that have been raised for interest infrastructure funds around the world. And, you know, the question of where they're going to put it. And I'm wondering, you know, have you, uh, Tyler, seen a real increase just in the amount of money and interest in investing in some of these projects today? Uh, versus say three years ago.
6: Absolutely, I think a few years ago, um, you're sort of staring into the abyss of a down cycle in energy and midstream energy and these businesses traded at fairly high multiples. So on the publicly listed side, you've seen multiples contract a lot. And typically, private equity was a capital source, but wasn't really driving the ship. Um, but that's really changed. So, it, since kind of early 2017 and, and accelerating over the last six months, we've seen a lot of private equity investors, be it the big infrastructure funds or some of the more niche energy infrastructure businesses, actually step in and either provide capital to publicly traded partnerships uh, or acquire discrete assets or build themselves. Um, they're actually paying very high multiples to get access to these businesses and to these assets, which, um, when you think about it, there's a huge incentive for private to deploy their money, right? They've got a very low cost of capital, much lower than the many publicly traded MLPs today. These are commercial businesses that can grow, that can typically pass things like inflation onto their customers. And so when you think about sitting on this war chest of a trillion dollars or whatever for infrastructure, you know, we think this is a really attractive place for, for that capital to be spent.
2: You know, I'm struck, Nick, by the idea that multiples are high. Basically, they're buying expensive companies. They're investing. Uh, they're they're making expensive bets right now. I'm wondering what is the sort of price of oil that a lot of these projects hinge on to be profitable.
7: I, I think most planning is probably done in the fifty to fifty-five dollar range, and I say that because if you were to look at where companies are now hedging the price of oil, a majority of the hedges are being put on at around 50 to 55, Interesting. as long as companies are getting an economic return, you know, that's really the, the balancing point for, for crude prices right now.
6: And, and it's interesting to note that when we talk about these differentials, that's actually what a lot of E.M.P.s, for instance, are, are, are getting at the uh, at their sort of local pricing points today. So, yeah, Brent might be at seventy five, but if there's an eighteen dollar differential between Midland and the Gulf Coast, um, someone that's actually producing energy in West Texas is only going to get fifty seven dollars. And so, I think it's important to note that you know just because that's what you sort of see as the headline price, yeah. um, there's a lower price being received, and these businesses are economic.
2: Thank you so much for being with me. A really important topic. Cohen and Steers, Tyler Rosenlicht, he's Senior Vice President and Portfolio Manager of Midstream Energy, and Cohen and Steers, Nick Koutsavtis, he is Senior Vice President and Portfolio Manager looking at the commodity space. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg P&L Podcast.
1: You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer.